0: welcome to on dod on federal news network now your host jared serbu glad you're with us this week the pentagon has just released its fourth request for prototypes as part of its strategy to prove out 5g technologies for military use this one focuses on how 5g might be able to share parts of the electromagnetic spectrum with existing military equipment we're going to start this week's program by digging into some of the details of the technology problems DOD, large telecom companies, and small, non-traditional companies are coming together to solve. Later in the program, some sad news. The Defense Department's longest-serving employee passed away this week after 77 years of federal service. Sarkis Tadigan was the small business advocate at Naval Sea Systems Command. We spoke to Mr. Tadigan a little over two years ago to mark his 75th work anniversary. We're going to listen back to that interview later in the program. First, though, 5G technologies. To help us understand the latest prototype request that DOD issued last week, we're joined by Sal Dietry, chairman of the National Spectrum Consortium. That's the body that's managing DOD's 5G other transaction agreements. Not just this latest one, but three others the department released earlier this year. So let's let's talk first about the latest um, request for prototype proposals that DoD issued last week on dynamic spectrum sharing. Talk a little bit about what that technology challenge is, and 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 tell us uh, some of the details that this consortium is going to be trying to solve, and its members are going to be trying to solve here.
1: Sure, thanks, Jared. Spectrum, as you might know, is a natural resource. It is it's critical to fueling our commercial wireless economy. It's critical to the Department of Defense in their mission to communicate and project weapon systems around the world. In the United States, that spectrum is held by traditionally commercial carriers or private entities and then allocated to the Department of Defense and federal agencies. What we're trying to do is look at ways that those two powerful entities can come together to share the spectrum to both fuel our national economy as well as enable new capabilities, uh, for the warfighter, uh, as we look out into the future. So this particular RPP looks at sharing spectrum, the wireless airwaves in what's called the mid band spectrum and the mid band spectrum, I might refer to as sort of Goldilocks spectrum, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's got the perfect propagation range. It's good for indoor. It's out. It's good for outdoor. And if you look at 5G technology, 5G is rolling out around the world in both millimeter wave, which is in the upper spectrum, but in this critical mid-band spectrum. And in the United States, the mid-band spectrum is encumbered by military assets. The military incumbent is there and has been for decades. So this particular RPP looks at opening up that spectrum in the mid-band, and it builds upon the um, if you will, or I would say augments um, earlier FCC regulations, which first opened up spectrum sharing in the mid-band using a technology called the spectrum access system uh, in something called the CBRS um, spectrum. So this is another opportunity at looking at opening up the mid-band spectrum for shared use between military and commercial users.
0: Can you give us a sense of of how mature we think existing technologies to do this kind of spectrum sharing are? I mean, how how much of this is going to be new invention versus figuring out processes to make things work well?
1: Well, that's a great question. Over the past five years, uh, through an incredible collaboration between the Department of Defense, the FCC, NTIA, the military and commercial stakeholders uh, have come together to create a standard and actually enable Uh, the launch of commercial products for spectrum sharing in mid-band spectrum. I referred to this earlier as CBRS, uh, but this is an ecosystem of over 30 uh, commercial OEMs who are offering uh, 4G services and soon 5G services in military spectrum, in mid-band spectrum. And the FCC uh, approved um, these spectrum access administrators Um, late last year, and this system is already rolled out commercially uh, in portions of the mid-band spectrum. So if we look at this opportunity at Hill Air Force Base, which again is looking at a a different slice of that mid-band spectrum, this really can build upon the earlier FCC commercialization efforts, but it takes on a new radar and new challenges uh, as we look at this domain that that are something the national spectrum consortium through its innovators its non-traditional silicon valley like companies can come together with DOD to tackle this problem and try and open up more of this uh, critical spectrum.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like there's there's kind of two things going on here. One is at, if you guys crack this nut at Hill Hill Air Force base, you figure out how to use 5G for military purposes, at that location, without interfering with military equipment, but then if it works, potentially you use the same approaches and technologies to enable the use of that same spectrum, that same military allocated spectrum for commercial uses
1: nationwide. Is that about right? That's right. The spectrum allocation is is nationwide, and so the opportunity at Hill to demonstrate, build proofs of concept, uh, to share spectrum with this particular military incumbent. Uh, can be scaled across the country, and it's critical. Also, as we look at uh, our 5G ecosystem, uh, you know, last year the Defense Innovation Board published a report calling for the Department of Defense to look at new innovative ways to share midband spectrum, and and this effort follows up on that recommendation and builds upon it.
0: Is is it really just that industry needs more spectrum to make 5G work in, in the in the way that industry wants to, or is it? Is it more of a matter of, as you said, this being an ideal part of the radio frequency spectrum to
1: run a 5G network? Globally, 5G systems are being built out in this band. And so for suppliers, both U.S. and as well as overseas, it's critical that the United States uh, find a way to to open up this mid-band spectrum as we look to continue to advance and roll out 5G. I would also say for the Department of Defense, it's a great opportunity to leverage shared spectrum among their own entities, and to do that in a way that has never been done before. Spectrum is traditionally assigned. It's not an automated process in many cases, and what this type of prototype is doing by bringing a fresh approach, looking at how Spectrum might work in the cloud, for example, with scalabilities And the response times of cloud technologies, for example, or just opportunities for DOD to share amongst its systems is going to create uh, greater opportunities as we look to the warfighter in the field having spectrum flexibility, having faster response times to situations where spectrum is interfered with, uh, where there are challenges posed by enemies to a spectrum environment. So it's not just an opportunity for the commercial industry to uh, get access to more spectrum. It's actually an opportunity for the Department of Defense to look at innovation and upgrading of its current spectrum policies and practices.
0: So that's super interesting. And this is really more a question for the FCC, I guess. But but is the regulatory framework um, ready to move to, to some hypothetical future world where we have dynamically allocated spectrum? I mean, have, have any other regulators around the world started looking at
1: that? Well, as I mentioned, the FCC uh, late last year did approve the use of shared spectrum in uh, it's in the uh, portion of the mid band uh, spectrum. We've been discussing the sort of three to four gigahertz range. So there are commercial deployments already in the United States. Uh, and there are commercial equipment manufacturers, commercial providers who are leveraging shared spectrum um, with military assets. So it's a proven technology. It's It's FCC implemented here in the United States. If we look globally, uh, there again, this was a US innovation, but other countries are looking at what we've done here in this so-called CBRS ban. Uh, the United Kingdom is is looking at uh, some shared spectrum initiatives through uh, rural connected communities initiatives. Uh, in Asia, folks are looking at shared spectrum. In, in, in Europe, um, folks are taking a hard look at what's been done in the United States. But clearly we're we're a pioneer and an innovator uh, in this shared spectrum wireless technology.
0: Sal Dietry is the chairman of the National Spectrum Consortium. Short break here, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the other three 5G prototype proposals that companies are working on for the Defense Department. This is On DoD, on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And getting back to our conversation with Sal Dietry, the chairman of the National Spectrum Consortium, talking about the 5G prototype proposals companies are working on for DoD. Let's back out a little bit and talk about some, uh, some of the other work that the consortium and your members uh, have, have been working on over the past couple months. This, this, the shared spectrum RPP is the fourth in a series so far. Can you just give our listeners a sense of some of the other projects that are ongoing out there?
1: Yeah. So there are, as you mentioned, four RPPs. Uh, the others include leveraging 5G technology for smart warehouse IoT applications, sort of the smart base application, and how 5G technology can bring logistics uh, to bear faster and smarter for the warfighter. It's all, we also have uh, an opportunity where we're exploring how 5G technology and augmented virtual reality can improve uh, live training opportunities for the US Army. And in today's world, as you and I are talking, we're we're all working from home. We're all virtual in some way. Uh, This opportunity looks at how 5G and some of these augmented or virtual reality technologies can help in training and warfighter communications. And there'll be plenty of uh, opportunities, I believe, coming out of that to look at improving how the commercial world can use these technologies. Uh, And then in the other one, as we mentioned, already discussed, we've already talked through the opportunity to expand the spectrum. Really what we're trying to do is take 5G technology. How can it help the warfighter? How can we train smarter, faster? How can we improve our logistics uh, and move that into the smart warehouse, smart base uh, world that we all read about? Can you
0: think of maybe some industry examples where these kinds of technologies in the first three technology development efforts might make their way into commercial type applications? Sure. If
1: you look at uh, what's been going on in the online ordering and logistics business for the past several years, some of the leaders in that space, we're talking about automated forklifting, smart delivery, uh, digitizing, uh, inventory systems, uh, leveraging what they call industrial vision, where workers are able to see inventory and um, leverage things like artificial intelligence on the warehouse floor to... uh, have the current experience that we do where you can go online, click on something and in perhaps less than 24 hours, have it delivered to your home. So some of these technologies cross over between commercial and, uh, and the military Uh, and in the training environment, certainly the augmented reality uh, you know, the army has a huge investment in the IVAS program uh, using augmented reality. What we're doing is adding mobility to that. Uh, And if you look at places where utility workers or field service workers who are mobile would be walking around with uh, an AR, VR environment, maps, um, drawings of where they're going, um, you could see some similarities there, as well as just remote training. Uh, Again, when folks are mobile, they're on a 5G network, they're able to leverage uh, virtual reality to train and improve their uh, profession or their skill set while they're on the road.
0: I guess part of what I'm trying to put my finger on is, you know, industry, the the wireless industry, the broader IT industry has obviously spent billions of dollars already rolling out 5G and developing the technology. In, in, In what ways is this relationship with DoD inducing companies or incentivizing companies to come up with technologies or innovate in ways that they wouldn't on their own?
1: Well, DoD, if you look at 5G, for example, if you look at millimeter wave technology, which holds a lot of promise uh, for its broadband capacity, unprecedented broadband capacity, but has limitations in how far it can travel, whether it can go through walls, things of that nature. The the Department of Defense has solved that uh, problem and addressed issues like long-range communication, hardened communication uh, excellently. And there are great synergies in working together to improve technologies like millimeter wave uh, for commercial use. Uh, As well, there are opportunities, particularly in the shared spectrum, which is critical to our national interest as well as to commercial uh, network operators to work together to continue to be innovators in that area and provide greater access uh, to commercial operators, uh, private enterprises as they work together. And I would say the last, perhaps, is the advent of private networks, which leverage the spectrum to now build private 5G enterprise networks. And when you have your own private network leveraging your own spectrum, you're now able to layer on the flexibility of of additional technologies, capabilities, because you have control of the spectrum on your base. That also has a growing commercial interest in uh, in the 5G enterprise market.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the consortium model itself. Um, DoD obviously decided this was a good fit for this kind of technology development effort. How does how does the consortium model seem to be working for for five G specifically so far?
1: Well, I, to me, the the National Spectrum Consortium it's over three hundred companies and it, it brings together the innovator, the non traditional, under an OTA, the Silicon Valley sensibilities. Uh, with the, the traditional DOD base. And we do that through uh, a series of collaborations. So long before an RFP comes out, we'll get together with the Department of Defense, brainstorm ideas, uh, write technical concepts, get together several times to refine ideas uh, long before you would see an RFP hit the street. And I, I truly believe that collaborative model uh, produces the best uh, work scope, and uh, the best opportunities for the warfighter. And so it's a refreshing opportunity. The company I represent, Federated Wireless, is a non-traditional, and there's no way that we could come in and engage in these activities with the Department of Defense uh, in the time frame we have without the other transactions.
0: Yeah, but there are also in the consortium um, some very big companies, AT and T and Verizon, for example, not not usually thought of anyway as as non traditional mom and pop garage startups. What's the kind of collaboration and mix between companies like yours Ben, with those bigger firms?
1: Well, it's it, as you say, it's an opportunity under a commercial like agreement to come together and collaborate. I will tell you that there have been opportunities that I've experienced through the consortium that have gone well beyond these uh, proof of concepts, where there have actually been business relationships, opportunities to bring a new technology to large companies, large companies to to bring their supply chain to some of our innovators, uh, and look at commercial opportunities uh, as well as opportunities within the DoD. And I get back to the collaborative approach that we get together as members and openly discuss technical concepts, uh, that we have working groups, that we have opportunities for uh, companies to bring ideas and work together um, in a process you don't see in a traditional FAR-based engagement.
0: Yeah. This is probably more a question for the government, but, but does the consortium, this particular consortium, offer the opportunity that we sometimes see under OTAs to move directly from prototype to a production OTA if things work well?
1: Our current OTA is uh, uh, coming on its five-year life. And um, the current OTA does not support the production clause. But as you mentioned, future OTAs uh, will support that. So uh, there is an opportunity for that for the National Spectrum Consortium, uh, we hope down the road. uh, But our current OTA uh, ends at the prototype phase.
0: Sal Dietry is the chairman of the National Spectrum Consortium, talking with us about the 5G prototype projects the Defense Department is running through that OTA consortium. We'll post more information about DOD's requests for proposals at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. When we come back, we will listen to our 2017 interview with Sarkis Tadigan, the longest-serving employee in DOD's history. He has just sadly passed away. This is on DOD on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servia. Thanks for listening to Federal News Network. This is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. The federal government, sadly, has just lost the only remaining World War II veteran in its workforce. Sarkis Tadigan joined the Navy in 1942, and he has been there ever since, up until his death this week at the age of 96. Mr. Tadigan had been the small business advocate at Naval Sea Systems Command, and he'd been working on Navy small business programs since 1952. I spoke to him in the fall of 2017 to mark his 75th anniversary working for the federal government. We're going to listen back to that interview today. Okay, Mr. Tadigan, you have been uh, retirement eligible since what year?
2: Uh, The earliest would be October 1973.
0: Well before a significant portion of the federal workforce was born, uh, let alone actually working in the federal workforce. what What's kept you interested in the job and wanting to do this for so many years?
2: Well, the uh, the reason I'd, uh, I'd say that is because the Small Business Program, when it started, uh, which was, uh, well, I joined it in 1951, October of 51. It was uh, about two years before the uh, Small Business Act was passed in 53. And it looked interesting, looked challenging and uh, it was evolved into any number of positions i had a uh, an assistant uh, position and l- later on became uh, the uh, the deputy for small business and an associate director and uh, uh, it's a changing thing there's a lot of variety to it a lot of challenging f- events that take place and uh, when you're dealing with uh, companies uh, uh, that have uh, one two or three people uh, It's a challenge to find their niche in the federal government procurement area and uh, watch them grow. And several of the companies uh, I know grew to several hundred people and they became uh, successful uh, firms. Uh, Many of them uh, sold their companies for 40, 50, 60 million dollars.
0: And I I do want to talk to you a lot more about small business, but let's actually back up a couple of years before 1951 because you were doing other things before you before you sort of became a pioneer in the small business space. How did you first get involved in federal service and and why?
2: Well, I uh I was 19 years old, first of all. And uh, uh I uh was interested in uh, radio and electronics. I was in uh, amateur radio, had uh, licenses and everything and uh when I saw that there was a need for uh, government ex- inspectors of radio, I applied for it and was picked out because of the fact that I knew the difference between an ohm and a volt, I guess. And uh, in this way, uh, we got my first occupation at uh, the Philadelphia Navy Yard at the Naval Aircraft Factory there in uh, July of uh, '42.
0: And then, how did you how did your interest in in small business first come about? As you said, this was 1951, before the Small Business Act, before there even was an SBA. How, how did that become interesting to you?
2: Okay, it uh, it happened this way. I was uh, in the guided missile branch of the research division in the Bureau of Ordnance, and uh, this was an offshoot from uh, my, what I was doing uh, in the Navy on active duty, and. Uh, Several of the people that had been there had moved over to uh, the Atomic Energy Commission, which is now the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and wanted me to go over there and work for them. And when they heard that I was leaving, the people in contract said, You should uh, be interviewed by these small business specialists of the Bureau of Ordinance. Well, I uh, went to meet him and. Uh, it uh, was a very good meeting. He, he decided that I'd just be better off there. So I got into the small business program in, uh, in uh, let's see, I think it was October of 51 then. And what was the what was the small business
0: environment like in those early days? I mean, just this was this was really around the wind down of World War II, when,
2: correct? Um,
0: you know, we, we were going from a full scale wartime environment where the defense industrial base was almost literally the entire American economy to a, a pretty rapid demobilization of, of not just personnel but wartime production too. Was part of your thinking at the time that that some of that needed to be preserved?
2: Uh, yes. Yes, I felt that way, and by the way, they had uh, numerous hearings. I might even have the hearing uh, material here in Congress about the fact that there was more and more a concentration of uh, industry among large companies. And, uh, of course, there's a large companies that built the ships and the tanks and the airplanes. But uh, this concentration existed and, in fact, it got larger based on hearings that were held by the various committees that were set up about that time. That is, a House Committee on Small Business and a Senate Committee on Small Business. So uh, it was from that that the uh, Small Business Act was uh, created. Uh, prior to the Small Business Administration, it was known as the Small Defense Plant Administration. And uh, then it was evolved uh, as the uh, uh, Small Business Administration, which it has been since uh, the Small Business Act in '53.
0: So what were some of the early things that, that you did to start promoting small business utilization? Because this was, again, early days. There was no playbook at that point for how to run an effective small business program in the federal government.
2: No, the first thing thing—the uh, first thing my supervisor assigned me, and by the first thing, I mean I joined the office, and uh, there was just the two of us, by the way. Uh, I joined the office in October of 51, and I think it was like November, he outlined something that we should be doing, and here's what it was. He said that we should have a mobile exhibit of the products that small businesses make, And uh, we'll have this uh, exhibit go around the country, visit every state, uh, all 50 states, and uh, the capital of every state, and all cities over 400,000 population. And uh, I'm the one that had to put all this together by myself. And uh, I put up the itinerary. I got the products for uh, exhibiting in a trailer. The trailer was a surplus government trailer, which we brought here in uh, the Navy Yard, Washington Navy Yard, where it was painted and repaired, and, and these uh, components were installed. We had a cutaway torpedo there, and uh, we went on a tour from uh, from Washington. It went up to uh, Baltimore, Wilmington, Newark, New Jersey, and on up uh, the coast there to New England and headed west. This was done uh, during the summertime, of course. In the spring, the truck came back, Uh, the truck tractor-trailer came back to to Washington, and then from then on, it went through the southern part of the country to uh, San Francisco. Uh, We had many mayors visiting this exhibit, Uh, many governors, Governor Earl Warren, for one, who later became Supreme Court Justice. And... uh, we had, uh, I think, about 40,000 people that saw this, and uh, it was quite a sensation of publicity and everything went with it. And many visitors, and by the way, the uh, cost of the trip, that is the uh, fuel, the gas, oil, and uh, the other expenses, including our expenses, our meaning the two of us here at the headquarters, uh, was more than offset by the increased competition that was uh, raised by companies who were interested in producing products that we buy. These products, by the way, were parts of guns, of ammunition, of mines, undersea mines, torpedoes, and various other components uh, that were all in the field of ordnance.
0: And th- these were these were parts of defense production that, as you kind of indicated earlier, had been previously done by the, the larger, more consolidated defense firms? Is
2: that right? Uh, some, some of them are large, uh, some of them are classified as small. The distinction in the size, by the way, has evolved to be the following. Generally, if you're buying a product, the uh, size standard is based upon the average number of people that the uh, company has employed in the past uh, three years. If it's a service like engineering, technical, professional services, then the size is based upon average annual receipts over three years.
0: Just for the sake of time, let's fast forward uh, a few decades. You've you've been in the same position since, I think, 1979, which is uh, pretty incredible in and of itself, as the uh, associate director of what's now called the Small Business Program Office, as you said, at, at NAVC. What were the government's small business utilization programs like at that time, and, and how have they kind of evolved and matured up until now?
2: Well, what happened was, uh, of course, the, uh, the law was passed, and the law required that each uh, each of the agencies, uh, every activity does, that has a buying or purchasing responsibility, would um, we had to have someone designated as the uh, small business specialist for that uh, component of the, uh, the government. Uh, there are uh, we have, of course, here in the Department of Defense, we have a a director, and then we have uh, directors. Uh, that are in the uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, and the Defense Logistics Agency. And then each of these agencies have uh, components that are further appointed as small business specialists or small business professionals, as they uh, are now known as. And the Navy, each one of its buying activities, 10 of them uh, uh, have uh, full-time people that serve in that capacity.
0: Over the last few years, I think, we, we've we've heard a lot of... I guess I'll say lamenting from from senior officials in the department about this idea that small and innovative businesses just don't want to do, do do not want to do business with the government because it's too much work. It's too complicated. And I wonder, you know, with the benefit of seven decades working on this problem, it, is that a recent phenomenon or has it always been thus? Has it always been the same challenge?
2: No, it's always a challenge. Many companies uh, feel that way uh, about doing government work. It's complicated and uh, and so forth. But uh, there is enough. uh, There's enough people in the government, whether it's in my capacity, the Small Business Administration, what they call P-Tax procurement and technical. Uh, activities in the field that are funded by the government to advise these companies what to do, how to do it, and uh, be able to uh, uh, go after the opportunities that are available for for setting up their businesses and be becoming successful.
0: Well, and over the years, what have you found the most effective pitch has been to convince them that doing business with the government is worthwhile?
2: Well, we have, uh, we have of course, uh, the uh, uh, one of the, one of the fallouts from that, of course, is increasing employment. As the company becomes more successful, they hire more people. I know of one company that uh, started off with three people. Uh, today they have uh, 650 people and uh, $95 million in annual revenue. They're not a small business. And uh, this happens to be a woman-owned business, too. There's uh, subcategories of small business also. And uh, uh, this was done in uh, not overnight, but uh, in the course of 14 years.
0: Just as a matter of policy, again, since you've been watching this, this space for so many years, it, what's the most helpful policy change or even legal change the federal government has made over the years that's, that's helped your mission, that's made it easier to connect small businesses with the government? Anything in particular?
2: Well, the legislation that uh, covers the small business programs is constantly, constantly changing uh, in size and form and shape, and uh, the uh, statutes, of course, uh, affect the small business program, and uh, uh, we uh, derive our regulations, of course, from the from the uh, statutes. Uh, there, these cover not only prime contracting but subcontracting as well. And uh, insofar as our work goes, uh, this is part of the outreach program by participating in activities uh, around the country. We're able to find small companies that can serve the government. By the way, there's another point, too, that uh, many of these companies are going to be necessary, not only for increasing employment, but in the event of mobilization. In fact, we had a meeting on that this morning. You've
0: only taken one vacation day this year. I understand, which I, I as I understand it, is fairly typical for you. What, what's what's the secret to not getting bored, to not getting burnt out? Um, you know, all the other reasons that that many employees decide to find a different job and move on.
2: Yes. Well, in my case, it's a uh, it's a variety of work. Every day is a, is like a, getting a new job. Uh, the the situations that arise, the problems that arise the people that you talk to on the phone or in the office, uh, in the business world. And uh, this this is probably the driving force, uh, the variety, instead of uh, being on an assembly line uh, tightening a screw or a bolt or something all day. I
0: I think almost no matter what job you're in, though, one one thing that sometimes frustrates at least some federal employees is this feeling that you're constrained in your ability to make change, especially rapid change. You know, you're 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 one piece of a really big bureaucracy that's not exactly um, agile or nimble. Have you ever felt that way in your 75-year career? And what's the secret to dealing with that?
2: No, you have to. Uh, uh, I haven't felt that way. Uh, you have to have a, a keen interest in what you're doing, and also be able to derive some sense of personal worthiness from it. What you're doing. And uh, this is what uh, keeps keeps you here. Otherwise, uh, uh, you would be following a uh, policy of don't let the grass grow under your feet, which means moving from one position to another. And that doesn't exactly help the personnel record because there'll come a time when they, they see that your only purpose Uh, in being there is to be ready to go to the next position. And this may uh, inhibit uh, any hiring that people might do because they're going to train you, and then you're going to leave.
0: That's a great point, but also from the government's perspective, there's something to be said for institutional knowledge.
2: And uh, there is is a, a mood, I would say, to retain you no matter what.
0: Any plans to retire ever, as far as you can see?
2: Well... No one uh, can last forever, I would say. Secondly, uh, uh, no one is irreplaceable either. So uh, it's something uh, we uh, start thinking of more and more as to when and where I'm going to be retiring.
0: For some, for a young person that's considering joining the federal workforce today and is kind of on the fence about it, what what would you tell them?
2: Well, I would tell them that they, uh, they should have uh, – if they want a government career, they should uh, – be uh, uh, specializing in, in some particular area and then uh, uh, move on from there instead of being uh, an all-around person. I think that would probably be the best thing, like say a contract negotiator or an engineer. And uh, as an engineer, well, you would have many, uh, many opportunities in the government, whether you're an engineer in sh- connection with ships or weapons or airplanes or whatever.
0: Sarkis Tadigan, the longest-serving employee in the Defense Department's history. He was the small business advocate at Naval Sea Systems Command. He passed away this week after 77 years of federal service. We recorded that interview in 2017 when he had just marked his 75th anniversary with the government. One more break here, and when we come back, how the Army is preparing soldiers for the economic effects of the coronavirus pandemic. This is On DoD. On Federal News Network, I'm Jared Servin.
1: Our mission is helping you meet your mission. Federal News Network.
2: Back
0: on Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Army is preparing its troops for the hit coronavirus is delivering to the economy. Last week, the service announced a new program to let soldiers who were planning to leave the Army stay in a little bit longer and continue to get a paycheck. Federal News Network's Scott Mascione spoke with the Army's Senior Career Counselor, Sergeant Major Stuart Morgan.
3: With the recent onset of COVID-19, some of our soldiers are now have now been faced with the rea- reality that some opportunities are no longer available to them. I think we've all seen that with the recent increase in, in the unemployment rate. And just looking around through your local community, you can see that multiple businesses have had to close their doors. And some of these businesses actually provided opportunities to our transitioning soldiers. So in line with our chief's priority of taking care of our soldiers, you know, we have, we are also providing opportunities and options to our soldiers in order to one, protect the force and also to preserve readiness at the unit level. And so what we've done is we've done a full top to bottom scrub of all the options we offer within the active component uh, with a view towards continued service and identified that we did have a gap. Uh, we We have multiple reenlistment options that can uh, offer the soldier a new assignment or some type of training um, and also stabilization options. but all of these options started with a minimum commitment of twelve months or or more. but what we did not have on the table was an option of forty two hour soldiers that provided them um, continued service starting at a minimum of three months. Um, Commitment up to 12 months. So that's what we've done. We've we rolled out what we've now coined the ARCO extension, the response to coped outbreak extension, which affords the soldier the opportunity. Uh, and, again, it's still voluntary in nature, um, but affords them the opportunity to extend for as little as three months up to 11 months. And then anything that surpasses 11 months, it now rolls into the normal options that we, we've been offering for, you know, for quite some time now, you know, through reenlistment options or through a continued service extension.
4: And that goes for about 9,000 soldiers, right, that are, are in this range? Yeah,
3: looking at the population that we have right now that is available to... To request continued service, that population is roughly around 9,000. It's slightly smaller. I would go closer to 8.5K. Obviously, each day that we move forward, some soldiers do a a trip out of the active component. This option just went into place, I want to say it was 24 March is when we got the official approval of the new extension, and then that rolled out the door on the 25th.
4: One thing that, that was really interesting is I was watching the leader of the Space Force Now, And he was saying that they had their top enlisted guy and they really wanted him to get into the Space Force, but they couldn't do it because they couldn't have a promotion ceremony for him. I know that's something that you're working on now is virtual promotions. Tell me a little bit about that and how you're you're promoting social distances while still giving these guys their dues.
3: As I'm sure you've already seen, there have been some exceptions to policy released in regards to promotions and to our Select, Train, Educate and Promote um, policy we have had to relook how we actually conduct our reenlistment enlistment ceremonies. Uh, typically, uh, I'm, I'm sure the public has seen this, you know, it's a time-honored tradition to have an actual ceremony for a, a soldier who is about to enlist or to re-enlist, and they get the, the, you know, the privilege of raising their hand and, um, and swearing an oath to our Constitution uh, and are admitted administer that oath for, uh, from a commission officer. The environment that we're in right now, with social distancing and with COVID, does not lend itself to to conducting those ceremonies face to face. So, through multiple platforms such as Zoom and as Business Skype and another video teleconferencing platforms, oath is administered through that form in, in, in a virtual setting. And in addition to that, we've also relooked how how do we how does a soldier actually sign. A contract. So this is typically done through a wet pen and ink signature at the time of the ceremony. Uh, Now we are leveraging more than we have in the past uh, digital signature capabilities um, on the reenlistment forms.
4: Another part of this program, I believe, has to do with qualifications, speaking of, of promotions. So a lot of people aren't able to do some of the courses that they need to do or do some of the uh, assignments that they need to go on. So tell me a little bit about that aspect of it.
3: We have not changed our our qualification criteria for for reenlistment. The only exception that we have made right now to our regulation is that a soldier must must have uh, passed their most recent record Army physical fitness test within nine months of their date of reenlistment. Again, based on COVID and our current social distancing uh, requirements, that doesn't really facilitate one soldier holding another soldier's ankles for the purpose of the sit-off event. So uh, we have just recently received uh, an approval uh, from Army G1 that allows a soldier to use their most recent record APFT, regardless of what the date was that they were administered that test, uh, to qualify them for reenlistment. Um, but all of the other qualification requirements that we've had uh, ha- have not changed. Uh, we still, to this day, only re-enlist quality soldiers, and that quality is determined, it's a mix between Army requirements, you know, that is codified within our regulation. And then also using the whole soldier concept from a commander's perspective on the ground, identifying if a potential candidate for reenlistment is, is considered quality within the commander's eyes or the commander's opinion. And, and that's done through gauging the soldier's current performance and how they're performing with their peer group, uh, their potential for not only continued service but for um, you know, potential in positions of increased responsibility. And so our commanders make those, that, that call on the ground when presented with a uh, request from the soldier for continued service.
0: That's Sergeant Major Stuart Morgan, the Army's Senior Career Counselor, talking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Sal Dietry, the chairman of the National Spectrum Consortium, about DOD's latest prototype proposal request to start to implement 5G technologies on military networks. If you missed that conversation, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. You can also listen in our podcast feed. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jared Servio. So long. You've been listening to On DOD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.